be in Matthew chapter 13, verses 47 to 52. Uh, now, the last few weeks, we've gone through these seven parables that are in Matthew. Well, we've gone through six so far. Today, we'll go through the seventh one. Uh, I'd mentioned previously that uh, these parables connect to the church ages in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Um, we're not going to get into that because it would take forever, but it's an interesting study to do on your own. But it's kind of important to know because Jesus so often in these parables will say at the end of the age. Okay, so we know there's a connection between the church age uh, and these parables, okay, and the, which um, gives us some understanding about what's going to happen at in regards to end times and revelation and things like that. Uh, this parable specifically, it connects a lot to what's going to happen in the end. Um, remember, these parables are really about the gospel, uh, the church, and the world. Okay, if you would just sum it up like that. And what we're going to see in this specific parable, the parable of the dragnet, we're going to see the full Fulfillment of the gospel, which brings me to the title of this teaching. It's a play on words. I know how to spell fulfillment. At least I think I do. The full fulfillment of the gospel. See, this dragnet, it's not going to be brought to shore until it's full. We see that there's a timeline in regards to when the dragnet will be brought to shore. But we also see that the gospel is going to fulfill its purpose. The gospel will fulfill its purpose on earth both to gather and to divide. All creation, every human being will be gathered to the throne of God and will be judged under the terms and conditions that were displayed in the gospel. Now we know there's a different judgment for the church and we'll talk about that too. But we're going to see here that the gospel is going to fulfill its purpose. It's going to fulfill what it was set out to do. Will we be those that say that the Lord says, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into my joy. You accepted Jesus Christ. It was displayed not just through your mouth, but the way that you lived your life. Or will we be amongst those that are judged and thrown into the lake of fire. Hopefully none of us. But as we'll see, just as the wheat and tares, uh, the parable there, there's, there's wicked among the just, just like there's wheat amongst the tares, and we don't always know. It's hard for us to distinguish. These two parables are very similar. Uh, the parable of the wheat and tares in verses 24 to 30, then explained in verses 36 to 43, and then the parable of the dragnet. But let's dive into the text and understand this a little deeper. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 13, verse 47 says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind. The kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet. Who has ever used a dragnet before? Anyone? Field trips when you were a kid, maybe? Yeah, some people. Okay, some fishermen. Okay, there's a, a dragnet and there's a cast net. There's other nets too, but these are the primary ones that fishermen use. Now, a cast net, it has, you know, bigger holes and you cast the cast net from a dock or a boat to catch usually bait fish, but specific kinds of fish. You're focusing on a specific type because you want to use those specific bait fish to catch other big 
bigger predatory fish. A dragnet, it's much more finely woven together. So the holes in it are so tiny. And a dragnet, basically what you do is you could drag it behind a boat or you could go out um, off the shore a little bit, you and another person or even you by yourself. There's all different kinds. But essentially what you're doing is you're dragging this net, hence the name dragnet, across the bottom of the seashore. And what it's going to do is it's going to collect everything. It's going to connect, collect rocks. It's going to collect seaweed. It's going to collect fish. It's going to collect crabs. It's going to collect anything and everything that's in its path. See, a cast net, the holes are big enough that some of the smaller things are going to get through it, not a drag net. Its purpose is to collect everything. And this is a picture of the gospel. See, the gospel, its purpose is to gather Okay, and what we're going to see here in this parable, um, yes, it's thrown out. It's it's going to gather all different kinds, uh, but as we see, it gathers everything. The things that it gathers, some are just and some are unjust. Some are good and some are bad. Its purpose is to gather everything. Look what, what it says here. Like a dragnet, verse forty-seven, that was cast into the sea. What's a sea? What's the sea a picture of throughout the Bible? talked about this before the nations the gentile nations specifically but the nations generally if you would flip with me real quick to habakkuk or habakkuk however you want to say it maybe when we get to heaven we can ask him how he wanted his name pronounced habakkuk chapter one i'll probably have a lot of those i'll probably get so much criticism when i get to heaven he's like you know you said my name wrong everybody's going to say that to me i'm like i know Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 14, it says, why do you make men, speaking to God, why do you make men like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? This is a picture of people in general. Why do you make men like fish of the sea? What's the implication there? Fish in the sea, the sea is so broad, the sea is so vast, there's tons and tons of fish just swimming around without really any direction, okay? And that's why he says in the second part, like creeping things that have no ruler over them. They're just swimming about aimlessly and they don't have a ruler over them to give them specific directions, That's the purpose of the dragnet, to gather all these fish that are swimming aimlessly, to gather them with the gospel, to point them in the right direction, to point them to their need of a righteous ruler. Men are like fish scattered in the sea without a ruler. That's the purpose of the dragnet, to bring them in so that they recognize their need for a ruler. Look at what happens. That last part of Matthew chapter 13, verse 47, it says, and gathered some of every kind. The sea contains all kinds of animals, right? The sea contains seahorses and fish and crabs, all different types of crustaceans, so many different different types of creatures, very diverse, right? And this dragnet is gathering some of every kind into the uh, fishermen to be brought to the seashore. That's the purpose of the gospel, right? To gather all nations, which brings me to the first point. The gospel will fulfill its purpose. The gospel will fulfill its purpose. See, 
The gospel doesn't discriminate. Jesus desires to gather everyone. He desires that all men will be saved. In fact, we see in Revelation um, a couple times, but in Revelation chapter 7, we see in heaven there's going to be all tongues, tribes, and nations. There's going to be some of every kind. There's going to be all kinds of believers, black, white, big, small, you name it. They're going to be there in heaven. There's no racism in heaven. There's no, I don't like the way she looks or I don't like the way he... No, none of that. There's no discrimination when it comes to the gospel. Every tribe, tongue, and nation will be there. And again, the gospel is going to fulfill its purpose, both to gather and to divide. What do I mean? It's Isaiah chapter 55. If you flip with me there. Isaiah 55, verse 11 it says, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Listen to that. God says my words will not return void. Essentially, my words are going to accomplish what they were set out to accomplish. That does not mean that everyone that hears the word is going to receive the word. We already learned that with the parable of the sower. God says, no, my words are going to accomplish what they were set out to accomplish. So often people say, well, the word of God won't return void. It's going to have an impact. But that impact could be the opposite impact of what you thought it was going to be. See, the same heat, there's a saying, the same heat or the same sun that softens wax hardens clay. Meaning, the same word of God that softens some hearts hardens others. And that's why Jesus says is the reason he speaks in parables. Because the people that don't want to understand, they're just going to harden their hearts towards it. The people that do want to understand, like the disciples we see throughout these parables, they're going to seek them for understanding. Wait, no, 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 that hit me, but I don't know what it was doing. What does this really mean? And they come to Jesus to get a firmer understanding of the words that he's speaking. That's what the word of God does. That's its purpose. The word of God is likened to a sword, right? In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it's meant to divide. It's meant to divide a line. But make believe I just divided a line in this ground, right in this center, uh, this isn't ground, whatever, carpet. In this center aisle, that's, that's what the word of God is meant to do. Yes, it's meant to gather all those that will be saved, but it's also to help people understand, hey, this is the, this is the gospel. You're either, Jesus says, for me or against me. I'm not saying that you guys are against Jesus. This side of the church is against Jesus. This side is for. No, doesn't matter where you sit. But that's the point. It's meant to divide. It's meant to draw that fine line in the sand that Jesus says, hey, you either accept the gospel or you don't accept the gospel, but this is the purpose of the gospel, to make a fine line. Hey, you're either for me or against me. Yes, it's meant to gather all nations, but it's also meant to, and we'll see later in this parable, to, to divide. People will be gathered under the terms and conditions of the gospel, but they'll also be divided. Did you accept Jesus or did you not accept Jesus? The gospel is going to fulfill its purpose and it's going to continue to be preached until every person that can be saved will be saved. Pick it up in Matthew chapter 13, verse 48. He says, which when it was full, they drew to shore and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. 
Okay, so when the dragnet is full, then it will be brought to shore. It's not brought to shore until it's full, until all those who will be saved or can be saved will be saved. This speaks of the fullness of the Gentiles. If you look at uh, Romans chapter 11, verse 25. Romans chapter 11, verse 25. Says, Paul writes, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Okay, look at that. There's a blindness that's been imparted to the Jewish people, to the nation of Israel. We talked a little bit about this last week. Until the fullness of the Gentiles. What does that mean? Until the last Gentile is saved, there's this blindness that's been over the eyes of the Jews in recognizing that Jesus is the Messiah. It's like this. Once that last Gentile gets saved, rapture, we're good, we're gone. We're taken up to heaven with Jesus. Okay, so I hope that it's me personally. I hope that I'm at the gym or I'm at the grocery store or I'm preaching to the uh, cashier or something. Hey, you know, you need Jesus. You're a sinner and you need Jesus. You're only saved by grace as a free gift. She says, I'll accept Jesus. And in that moment, immediately we're raptured. Be amazing, right? Don't you hope that that's you? That you're the last person you preach to the last, that you're the one that God uses to fulfill the fullness of the Gentiles, that last person. But this is what's going to happen. After the rapture will come the great, the, the tribulation, then the great tribulation. We don't know if it's right after the rapture. Um, sometime, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly the timeline there between the rapture and when the tribulation starts. We know the tribulation is seven years though. Okay, so what's going to happen here is when the fullness of the Gentiles happens, when all the Gentiles that would be saved are saved, um, before the rapture, when the rapture happens, the Jews are going to recognize, many of them are going to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Well, how is this going to happen? Flip with me to Zechariah chapter 12. In Zechariah chapter 12, and you can hold your finger there because we're going to look at 13 as well. And then we'll be back there eventually again in chapter 14. Um, in Zechariah chapter 12, look at this, verse 10. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierce. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. Who do you think they're talking about here? Look on him whom they pierce, yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day there will be a great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadad Rimnon in the place of Megiddo. Okay, Zechariah is specifically speaking of the tribulation, and what he's saying here are people, the Jewish people are going to recognize that the one whom they pierce is their rightful king. 
Now, this is definitely going to happen. How it happens uh, is interesting. In Revelation, it talks about these 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe, these Jewish people that are anointed with the Holy Spirit, and they're going to preach the gospel. Yes, to the nations, but also to the Jewish people. And the Jewish people, this blindness is going to... Uh, be taken away and they're going to say, oh my gosh, Jesus, the one whom we pierced, this is the Messiah. So many Jews are going to be saved during the tribulation. But look what happens. In Zechariah chapter 13, if you skip over, verse 8, it tells us exactly uh, how many, fraction-wise anyways. And it shall come to pass in the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die. He's speaking of the Jewish people. But one third shall be left in it. I will bring the one third through the fire. I will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. So we see two thirds of the Jewish people are going to be killed, possibly persecuted by the Antichrist. Then a third of the Jewish people are going to recognize God as their God, as Jesus as their God, and they're going to come to salvation. Now, if you look here in Matthew chapter 13, we see that all of these creatures in the dragnet, parable of the dragnet, are gathered, okay? So the dragnet is not going to be brought in until it's full, but we also see that just because it's full doesn't mean that everything in it is good. Okay, so we see here in verse 48, after they draw the dragnet to shore, they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. Okay, now if you look real quick, jumping around a lot, if you look real quick and skip to verse 50, it says, and cast them into the furnace of fire, there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Um, so these angels are going to separate the good from the bad, and those that are bad, those that don't know the Lord or don't have a relationship with the Lord, are going to be cast into the furnace of fire. This speaks of a specific judgment that happens at the end of time in Revelation chapter 20. Look what happens. The one that's sitting on the throne does the judging. He does the separating. If you flip with me to Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, it says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which are written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So we see here, this isn't the judgment of the church. This is after the millennial reign, okay? The church, we're going to get raptured. We're going to face the Bema Seat judgment, which is basically a rewards-based judgment. You've been covered with the blood of the Lamb. What did you do with the grace that was given to you? 
will be judged according to our works. Our good works will be rewarded according to our good works. We'll be rewarded with different crowns that the Bible uh, talks about. This judgment, specifically, it's after the tribulation, then after the millennial reign, this great white throne judgment. So what's going to happen? So basically, this is what we'll see. Anybody have a family member that they preach the gospel to and hasn't accepted the Lord? Come on, probably everybody in the church, yeah? Mm, Me? Okay, so so what's going to happen is after I preach the gospel to that last cashier and she gets saved, we all get caught up to heaven where we meet the air, meet the Lord in the air, the sound of the trumpet of God, which is important. So we're going to meet the Lord in the air. Those other people that were standing behind me, listening to me preach the gospel to the cashier, they're going to be like, dude, he was just saying that they're just gone all of a sudden. Who's going to check us out? There's no more cashier. He's gone. The cashier's gone. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I've heard this message before and somebody's talked about this rapture thing before. What's going on here? All the Christians that I knew before are gone. And there's going to be some that through the tribulation get saved. They're called tribulation saints. Your family members, maybe that you've been preaching the gospel to for so long that they didn't receive it. Once you're gone, they're going to be like, oh my gosh, what they were saying is true. Now, it's going to be very difficult for them to be a Christian during the tribulation because they will be persecuted. The Bible says that they'll be beheaded, um, most likely. And there's a lot about that word. But anyways, it's going to be more difficult to be a Christian during the tribulation, even more so than it is right now. But those are tribulation saints. Now, what's going to happen during the millennial reign, uh, the church, it says that we're going to rule and reign with Christ over the nations, okay? We're going to rule over the tribulation saints, anybody that got saved during the tribulation. But it's for a thousand years. Satan's bound for a thousand years. We're just ruling and reigning with Christ. The rest of the people that accepted the Lord during the tribulation, they're under the authority of Christ and us in a sense. But they're going to have kids. And their kids are going to have kids. A thousand years is a pretty long time. So generation after generation after generation, all they know is Jesus Christ ruling and reigning. Satan's not there, but they still have their flesh that they're struggling with. They still have their sinful nature. Everything isn't perfect yet. So what's going to happen? There's going to be the tribulation saints, their children's 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 children that end up raising up and rebelling against the Lord. It says it right here in Zechariah chapter 14. I'll show you real quick. <clears throat> Zechariah chapter 14. This is after Jesus comes and stands on the Mount of Olives in those first four verses of this chapter. Um, he's going to come with the saints. Um, Battle of Armageddon is going to take place. This is during the millennial reign. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 16, it says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast 
of tabernacles. So what do we see here? The Lord's going to reinstitute the Feast of Tabernacles. Everybody's going to be under the authority of Jesus. He's going to rule. This is like we're under the authority. Like, okay, we got two great options, right? We got uh, Hillary or Donald right now. That's who we get to choose who we're under the authority of. Okay. Now, during this time period, the millennial reign, we're going to be under a perfect king. Jesus Christ. Absolutely perfect. No flaws. Never has to, never like, not one of his words falls to the ground. Okay. Unlike the leaders that we have right now. But Jesus, he's going to be a perfect leader. And what's going to happen is even though he's a perfect king, those people that we just saw in Zechariah chapter 14, they're going to choose not to worship him. They're going to choose not to come up to the Feast of Tabernacles and recognize his authority. They're essentially rebelling against him. And he says, there's going to be plagues that come upon those people. And they're actually going to receive eternal judgment. They're going to be thrown into the lake of fire. Because even in a perfect setting, man still has a tendency to rebel. And that's what it speaks to. That's what's going to happen. Look back at Matthew chapter 13. So he gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. Okay, there's good fish and there's bad fish. Okay, there's good fish whose names are written in the book of life. And there's bad fish whose names are not written in the book of life. And the good fish are going to be gathered into vessels. The bad fish are going to be thrown away, he says later in this parable, into the lake of fire. Look at Matthew chapter 13, verse 49. <clears throat> So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just. Look at this. It says, so it will be at the end of the age. Have you ever considered with everything that's happening in this world, with everything in the Middle East, even in our country, it's like, Lord, Lord, I want you to come back. Like, come on. This world is like, has forsook you. Judgment needs to come. But look what it says here. Till the, he's going to wait till the end of the age. Why? Because he's gracious. Which brings me to the second point. God's grace waits till the end. God's grace waits till the end. So this speaks of a specific age. We're in the age of grace, okay? Or the church age. What do I mean? There's seven dispensations, um, and you might want to study this. It's pretty really cool when you look into it. Um, from the age of innocence, back when Adam and Eve were in perfect fellowship with God in the garden. They had it made, right? And then we have several other dispensations until it comes to the point that Jesus Christ died on the cross, birthed the church, and now we're in the age of grace, Okay. For the last 2,000 years, we've been in the age of grace. We're in that dispensation, okay? We're under the terms of the gospel, those that accept the gospel. But everybody has the opportunity to accept the gospel, to accept God's grace on them. That's not how it's always been before the gospel was preached, before Jesus died on the cross. So right now, we're in the age of grace. But look what he's saying. So it will be at the end of the age. The end of what age? The end of grace. Okay, so there's going to be a timeline here. And when um, he's, he's saying the, the age of grace is going to end eventually. But what we see here, if you study the dispensations and you look at all these eras and ages, we're in the longest age thus far. 2,000 years. No other age has been this long 
this far. The age of grace is longer than any other dispensation throughout the Bible. 2,000 years. Why so long? Because God's patient with unbelievers. It's 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Look what he says here. He makes it very clear. Second Peter chapter three, verse nine, he says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises as some count slackness, but is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. See, God is waiting. He's displaying long suffering with the unbeliever, with those who are rebellious because he wants to wait to the last moment so that everyone that is around can have the opportunity, can have the chance to be saved. If they don't accept him during the age of grace, their last opportunity is going to be to accept him during the tribulation. And that's going to be very difficult. It's going to be, uh, it's going to cost them literally their heads as we discussed. So the age of grace, so it will be at the end of the age, the age of grace, it doesn't last forever. There will be an end of the age of grace. Look what it says. The angels, verse 49, will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just. So the angels will be involved with this last great judgment. They will be involved in separating the just from the unjust. Okay, but God is doing the directing here. It's not like the angels are like, eh, you know, I like this one. I don't really like this one. The, the angels are only under authority of God. They're only doing exactly what God tells them to do. So this one's just, this one's unjust. God makes that decision and the angels are working for God. Now it says, the wicked from among the just. It's very similar to the wheat among the tares. There's wicked among the just. What does that mean? Uh, it's sometimes hard to distinguish who's just and who's wicked. Now, we might look on the outside. They appear just. They come to church. They do all these different things. They seem like they got a great relationship with the Lord. But the Lord is the only one that truly knows, right? He says, many in that day will say, Lord, Lord. And I'll say, I never, I never knew you. So we see there's wicked among the just. Like they're around them. They're involved with them. And it's hard to tell the difference. There will be people that think they're just, but are really wicked. Now that's absolutely horrifying. The only thing worse than not being right with God is thinking that you're right with God when you're not. And Jesus makes so many clear warnings that, hey, you better make sure, challenge yourself, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Make sure that, that, that you are who you think you are as far as my relationship with you is concerned. The relieving part about this final judgment is, again, that God is going to be the judge. Now, we know the church is going to have an involvement in ruling and reigning with Christ and judging the nations uh, during the millennial reign. But the final judgment, that's God's. He's the one that's sitting on the white throne. He's the one that's casting judgment and evaluating, okay? 
Now, this is relieving uh, to me, it should be relieving to you that it's not us that judges between who's being saved and who's not being saved. Why? Because our judgments tend to be biased. I would probably say something like, whoever's a Florida State fan, you're coming to heaven with me. If you like the Gators or Miami or anything like that, sorry, lake of fire for you. But no, in all sincerity, our judgment is biased. It's not perfect judgment, but God, God's judgment is perfect. Which brings me to the third point. God's judgment is perfect. By the way, did anybody watch Florida State Miami last night? Florida State won. Guess, guess we know whose side God's on. I'm kidding. They had a terrible loss the week before. I almost cried. Anyways, God's judgment is perfect. We have to remember this, that by God's very nature, he's a judge. Okay. We always love to quote first John four, seven and eight, that God is love. True. But God's not just love. He's holy, right? He's a judge. He's just. He's more than just love, okay? Love kind of summarizes who God is. But there's so many other characteristics that we see of God. The Lord is gracious, merciful, long-suffering. He gives so many other words than just love to describe himself. And one of those words is that he is a judge. Now, we look at this and we're like, eh, I don't really like the judgment side of God. I don't want Jesus to be the judge. I don't want his, I want his grace. I want his mercy. I want his love. I don't want his judgment. But have you really realized you don't receive his grace without his judgment? What do I mean? In Romans chapter 1, uh, actually, those first three chapters in Romans, I love Paul. Uh, basically, what he's doing is he's bringing all of humanity into the courtroom and saying, you're all guilty. Every single one of you are guilty. And it's really summed up in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single person, I don't care who you are, I'm Paul the Pharisee. If anyone was righteous, it was me, and I'm still guilty. So that means you guys are all guilty. We're all guilty before God. And then he goes into uh, speaking more about grace in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. He says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So we're all guilty of sin. The wages of sin, the cost of sin is death, not just physical death, but eternal death says, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We either face eternal judgment or we accept the sacrifice that Jesus made. See, he volunteered to be judged for us. If Jesus isn't judged, there's no grace for us. Okay, somebody had to pay the price. And though we look at the grace, couldn't God just forgive enough? No, 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 because he's holy. That means there's a price to be paid for sin. So when we say, no, Jesus, I don't want your payment for sin, we're taking it on ourselves. What we're saying when people don't accept the gospel is I'll pay the debt. I don't care if Jesus paid the debt. That's fine. I'll pay it. Be careful what you're saying here. People don't realize it's not just, oh, you don't want a relationship with Jesus. No, it's not just you don't get relationship with Jesus. You have to pay the debt for your sin. The debt for your sin is eternal judgment. It's the lake of fire. That's terrifying. That's horrifying. When we reject his sacrifice, we'll, 
we're really saying, yeah, I'll choose to pay for my sins. I'll choose to sacrifice for my sins. And we know because we're not holy, we're not perfect, we can't pay the payment. So we suffer. It's a lifetime of debt. It's an eternity of debt that we owe because we didn't live a sinless life. So our sacrifice really means nothing. Look what happens in Matthew chapter 13, verse 50. It says, And cast them into the furnace of fire, and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. In other words, the lake of fire. When we choose to reject Jesus, we're choosing the lake of fire. God doesn't send people to hell. People send themselves to hell. That's why he waits till the end of the age. Grace, grace, grace. I'm making this the longest dispensation, the longest age possible, because I want everyone that possibly can be saved to be saved. God doesn't send people to hell. People send themselves to hell. And look what he says. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. This is actually a place. Jesus talks more about hell than he talks about heaven. Talks more, we have more understanding of hell in the scriptures than we do heaven. He talks about it more. I think it's really important to understand that and grasp that because you have so many doctrines and beliefs out there that they're just like, oh, God is love, so why would he send someone to hell? We already talked about that. People send themselves to hell. God doesn't send them to hell. Yeah, God is love, but he's also just in this place called hell is reserved for those that reject him that reject the payment, the price for their sins, and they don't want relationship on earth, so he's just giving you over to the desires of your heart. You don't want relationship with him now? You don't have an opportunity to later. He's just giving, okay, this is what relationship without me looks like. It looks like eternal fire. It looks like eternal torment. And this is an actual place. And I say eternal because I believe it is eternal when you look at scriptures. It's not just a place. Many will say, it's a place you go and suffer for a while and then you just perish or you just fall out or you just die. But this is my argument. If eternal judgment is only temporary, then only then eternal life is only temporary too. How can you go one way without the other? If you're going to say, oh, eternal judgment is only for this time period, you're going to suffer for a while and then you're just going to stop existing, then same thing has to go for eternal life. You'll just have this great life for a while and then all of a sudden you'll just stop existing because it's the same word that's used to describe both of those. Eternal judgment and eternal life, it's the same word. What we do with the gospel that's been presented to us, how we respond to it has eternal repercussions or rewards. In light of that, consider this. In light of knowing that people, when they reject Jesus, they're taking on the debt for themselves, which they can't pay the price, so they just suffer for eternity. In light of that, now is the time to preach the gospel, because we don't know when the end of the age is. We don't know when the trumpet's going to sound. We don't know if it's going to be you or me or somebody in China. That last person that receives the gospel, the rapture happens. And then what? We don't have the chance to preach the gospel anymore. The church is no longer there. The church is taken up. Look what happens in verse 51. Jesus said to them, have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes, Lord. Jesus asks them if they're understanding these things, why? Because he's a teacher 
And the objective of a teacher is to give understanding. He needs the disciples to understand these things. There's another reason, and he explains it in Matthew chapter 13. Remember, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 23, but he who received the good seed who receives seed on the good ground, is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty and some thirty. Jesus needs the disciples to understand this. Why? Because if they don't understand this, they're not going to produce fruit. What do you mean? Well, if they don't understand this, how are they going to wrap their minds around it and do something with it? If they can't act on it, if they can't do anything with the word, Fruit's not going to be produced. I need you to understand these things. So Jesus asked him, disciples, I know I just talked about a lot. You know, these parables, they're in depth. Yada, do you understand these things? And the disciples say, yes, Lord. I don't really know if the disciples completely understood Jesus at this point. Personally, I don't think they did completely understand them because they didn't have the indwelling spirit. Jesus hadn't explained everything to them like he did during his resurrection. They didn't have the book of Revelation. They didn't even have the New Testament at this point. So they probably understand in part, right? They know in part right now, but they don't know fully. But they say, yes, Lord, we understand. Matthew chapter 13, verse 52. Then he said to them, therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out his treasure, things new and old. Okay, important to understand, scribes in this day, they weren't just someone that wrote down the scriptures and copied them down. Yes, they did that, but they also taught the scriptures. We see that um, in Ezra. Ezra, he was a scribe, but he also taught the word of God. So the scribes, they're not just writing down the scriptures, they're also teaching. That's why the understanding is so important. If they... Um, if they're just writing the stuff down, they don't really have to understand. If you're just copying things down, you don't really have to understand what you're writing. But if you're teaching it, you need to understand what you're saying. He says, therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. Why is Jesus saying this? Well, he just spoke to them. He spoke to the disciples concerning things that were going to come. He taught them mysteries about salvation. He taught them the mysteries of the church all throughout these parables. He taught them deep things that they had never heard before. So he's saying, yes, you know the Old Testament and you got a handle on that, but you need to know these new things that I'm communicating too. He says the treasure, it's old and new information. It's not just one or the other. You ever hear that expression, um, out with the old and with the new? Jesus is saying, no, in with the old and in with the new, which brings me to the fourth and final point. In with the old and in with the new. The old supports the new and the new clarifies the old and you need both sides. Now we can talk about the Old Testament and the New Testament. We need both of those things. They don't contradict each other. They support each other. Speaking to the disciples specifically, saying, hey, you know the Old Testament, but I'm teaching you new things. And there's a character behind what Jesus is trying to get across to them. I want you to remain teachable. Brings me to Luke chapter 5. Jesus says, um, communicates a, a similar heart connect. If you look at Luke chapter 5, he's specifically speaking to the Pharisees. But he says this. He's questioned about why him and his disciples aren't fasting. 
And he uses this illustration in verse 37. He says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And no one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires new. For he says, the old is better. Now, we got to understand the context here and even the culture. So a wineskin, it was made out of uh, goat skin, okay? Sometimes they would even use goat bladders. But just picture goat leather, okay? So you have you have this, this leather um, that's been sitting for a while and it has this wine in it, all right? Over time, that goat leather is going to become hard. It's going to, anybody ever feel like old leather? Yeah, it becomes hard, it becomes brittle, it becomes more tough. What Jesus is saying is, say you had an old wine skin that was old and brittle and tough, kind of hard. If that was emptied and you put new wine, new wine into that old wine skin, because it's so hard, because it's so brittle, when the new wine expands, it's going to burst that wine skin open. That wineskin, because it's old, it can't retain the new wine because when the wine expands, it's going to burst open. So he's saying you need to be like new wineskins all the time. What's new wineskin? It's soft. It receives. It can expand with the new wine that gets poured into it. What's Jesus saying? The new information, your hearts, it's a picture of our hearts. The Pharisees, their hearts are so hardened that when these new concepts, these new ideas that Jesus is teaching them, they can't receive it. They couldn't allow that new wine, those new ideas to enter into their hard hearts because their hearts would just burst. They couldn't receive it. They couldn't contain it. So he says, I need you to be like new wineskins, soft, vulnerable, teachable, always ready to receive new wine because I got news for you. Jesus has something new to teach us each and every day. And he says, "Don't, hey, you can't be like an old wineskin. I'm trying to teach you stuff daily. Yeah, my word's not going to change, but the depth of it, you'll understand as you dive deeper and deeper into my word. Yeah, I got new wine for you every single day. What's the problem? Just as he said, hey, you know, people like the old wine, like you're using that story with the wineskins. It's like people like old wine. It matures with age. Everybody wants the old wine. But what's the problem? We get comfortable and stuck with the old wine. And when we get stuck and comfortable with what we like, the old ideas, the old concepts, we don't want the new. We don't want to try the new. No, I'm good with what I know. I'm good with what I have. I don't want anything new. When you first came to the Lord, I'm sure many of you, you had such a zeal. You had such a passion. If you were anything like me, you wanted to know every single thing about the Bible, any question you had, you were diligently searching commentaries, finding answers, looking stuff up. You wanted to know the whole Bible. Like you couldn't get, you couldn't wait till the next morning to get back in the word and understand like what happens with this guy, Abraham, what's going on here? This book, what are these things? I don't get it, but I want to know I'm hungry. And Jesus, he was just pouring new wines, wine into us constantly. Why? Because we were soft. We were teachable. Our hearts were ready to receive the word. Our hearts were ready to receive something new on a daily basis. But as time goes on, our hearts get stuck in what we know. Yeah, I already know this. Heard this teaching before. I've, I've read this passage before. I've studied this thing in depth before. Are you saying that Jesus has nothing left to teach you? 
because this is the reality. When it comes to digging in the word, we're never going to hit bottom. When you were a kid, did your parents ever tell you if you dug straight through the ground, you'd dig all the way to China? I know, what the heck? Well, that's so evil, right? They're just trying to give us something to do, right? It's like, yeah, just keep digging till China. We'll come get you later. It's like, come on. Me in Florida, I would always hit water and be like, well, if I dig to China, I'm going to drown. So I'll give up on this. I don't care about going to China that badly. But in all sincerity, it's the same thing when it goes to the word. We can just keep digging and digging and digging deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper with that concept. Like I'm digging all the way to China because this goes so deep in in all truth. The word of God is so deep. It's eternal. It's never you're never going to hit bottom. There's so much depth. So Jesus is saying, no, the treasure. Yes, it's the old, but it's also the new. I have new things I want to communicate to you. I want to take you deeper and deeper on a daily basis. But are, are you willing to come along for the journey? Or are you stuck where you're at? Are you just okay with that? Yeah, this is what I know and I'm good. I know enough. Because if that's where you're at, Jesus would exhort you to say, no, 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 no. You're getting hard. You're turning into an old wineskin. Stay new. Stay soft. Stay teachable. See, the gospel, it starts with grace, right? <clears throat> it's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It's a free gift that we receive. Jesus offers it to us, and by grace, we're saved. It's nothing that we do. It's not by works. It's simply by grace. We receive this gift, okay? But it's interesting, in Second Peter chapter 3, it starts with grace. The gospel starts with grace. The gospel also continues with grace. It's Second Peter chapter 3, verse 18. And in closing this book, he says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. See, the gospel, it, it starts with grace, but Peter says, grow in grace and grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We know the gospel is going to fulfill its purpose and what it was set out to do on this earth. It's going to gather and it's going to divide. We know it's going to fulfill its purpose by reading this parable. The dragnet's going to do what it was made to do. It's going to gather and it's going to divide. But is the gospel doing what it was made to do in you? Is the gospel doing what it was made to do in me? Because the gospel wasn't just to bring me to salvation, that grace that we first received, but no, but grow me in grace. Grow me in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. It starts with grace and it continues with grace. Are you growing in grace today? Are you growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ today? Did you learn something new today? Don't respond. Are you going to learn something new tomorrow? Are you going to be open to allow the Lord to grow you in grace, to grow you in the knowledge of who he is, to take you from the things that you knew of old to things that he wants to teach you new, new things because he has a new thing he wants to do today and tomorrow and the next day. And my hope and prayer is that you don't just come on Sundays and Wednesdays and say, oh, maybe I learned something new but that every day you'd be open to the new things that God is trying to teach you. And me too. Let's pray. 
Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you're never through with us, that you constantly want to teach us and grow us, Lord. It's so cool. It's like we can, we can study your word for eternity and still have new things um, that come up that you want to get across to us. God, I pray that we would remain teachable, Lord, that we wouldn't get stuck in what we know or our comfort zone, God, but we would be um, challenged by you to, to grow in grace. We know you use grace to teach us, God, not to allow us to be lazy and complacent in our walk, but you desire grace to teach us. So I pray that that would be the case for us in your name. Amen.